could deep fakes be good for cybersecurity? I'm Anna Delaney, editor at Tice, and this week we are exploring the weird world of deep fakes, one of the latest ways cyber criminals are exploiting people and making money. Put simplistically, the term deepfake refers to an image, video or audio clip that is manipulated using artificial intelligence and deep learning to depict something that did not really happen. On this week's episode, we have two experts tackling the topic. First from a tech perspective, Andre Kowalecz, Director of Strategy and Technology at Optive, who explains how criminals are using deepfakes to their advantage and what tech is developing in the arena to combat the threat. My second guest is Tamara Quinn, a non-contentious IP and data privacy partner at Osborne Clark, who shares a legal perspective on the topic. But first, here's Andre. You obviously see a lot of what the cyber criminals are producing. What are they doing? How are they using deep fakes to their advantage right now? What have you seen? So people are using deep fakes and particularly audio deep fakes, so deep, deep voice. Um, as a part of a blended phishing attack. So we're all becoming aware that if you get an email from your finance director asking him, asking you to, to send some money to an account at the end of a quarter, for example, as we've seen really recently, the first thing you do is you think, there's something off, maybe that's not right, maybe it's out of, you know, out of normal operating procedures, I'll give them a ring. But if at that point, you look on your phone and you have a voicemail from that person saying, hi, I'm in a train station, could you just, I've sent you an email, um, if you need to talk to me, give me a ring, but I'm going to be in the air or travelling for the next couple of hours, please could you send that money? And it sounds exactly like that person. All of a sudden you've got a second validation point in a phishing attack that starts to become a blended attack. And that, again, isn't, it's not particularly hard to do, but you do it in a targeted way. It's not a mass-scale phishing scam, not hundreds of thousands of emails being sent out. But where you want to get a, you know, a high-profile or a high-value target to respond, something like that is relatively easy to do. I think the other way that people are using it is in what we describe as information operations. So fake news, the ability to influence or disrupt somebody's reputation, to change the narrative of a story, to... Um, pretend somebody said something and they didn't. If you think about the impact on an organization, it's that, you, know, you can see the, the direct correlation between an organization's reputation and their credit score. And that affects how the cost of money is or how well you know, your ability to operate is. So if, you, you know, if, if a fake video of your CEO was to you know, turn up online of them saying something 10, 20, 30 years ago, a grainy film that you know, saw them off-the-cuff remarks at a dinner party or at a dinner, an industry dinner, saying things that they shouldn't. It's very, very hard to disprove that. And whilst you're trying to disprove that and respond to a news cycle, a, a disruptive information operation against your organization or your, you as an individual, um, the impact on your business can be quite severe. As disruptive as a technical attack against your infrastructure or the stealing of data and information. Um, so I think there's two ways that these things can be really, really used. As a direct attack as part of a classic kill chain or as part of information operations to confuse, distract or disrupt some of these operations externally. And naturally, our, all of our cybersecurity response 
responses, incident response plans, are designed around responding to an attack against our infrastructure, our data, and our organization, where to some extent we can control the response. If that happens outside your organization, if it within social media, and it's amplified by armies of bots and, 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 and well-meaning members of public, you can't control it in the same way. You can't perform digital forensics, you can't control the news cycle, you can't understand and control you know, how that perception is being brought into reality. But you have to react to it. So tell me how companies should respond. How should they start thinking about deep fakes? Um, first of all, it's just another part of the cyber security or information security jigsaw. Um, it's an emerging threat. And these AI-enabled crimes really need a, a very different type of uh, security capability response. To some extent, an AI-enabled response is able to see those, that volume of attacks, understand why it's different, track behavior, as well as just an indicator of compromise, and, and be able to sort through a lot of that noise, to some extent, in real time. So there's a, there's a big shift in the attack and the detection and response technologies that underpin it, that are happening both on the, you know, on the, on the cyber criminal side and on the defensive side. Um, I think the second big change that needs to happen is that people genuinely have to move away from a technically based instant response process and think about how I respond to an attack against the reputation of my organization, how I respond to an attack that is against me or my organization, but it sits with outside of the boundaries that I control. So all of your normal response mechanisms, procedures, and training are about dealing with an attack within your organization and how you respond to that. And I think that is one of the key things. So how do you train to respond to a new cycle, reputation, to prove or disprove something that didn't happen? Now, these are very different security questions and very different, different security responses. Um, it's no longer about maintaining availability of systems or um, the resilience of your operational activities, but it's the resilience of your organization and how it's seen externally. Um, and I think that's the big key. We've seen a, we've seen a big shift uh, almost away from responsive uh, instant plans through a period of risk to actually organizations thinking much more clearly about resilience and how do I continue to operate in the face of constant and damaging disruption and attacks. I think this starts to take it to a new level. We haven't seen it very often, but there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are huge parallels in um, politics as we've seen you know, in information operations, state against state, around election, um, and around celebrities having to prove and disprove things that they might not have done. And I think that is, a, uh, is an example and casts a, a quite a long shadow across the, the enterprise world to say, you know, could this happen and could it happen to me? And the answer to both of those is yes. But it also gives the opportunity for people to deny what really happened, um, which is a bit worrying, I think. Yeah, I mean, you, the point you raise is, I guess, which is, so what is truth? Is truth 
the most widely held view of what happened, or is it actually what happened? And therein lies the, I think, lies the real nub. If millions of people in social media say and believe that something happened, but it didn't because it was it was triggered by a piece of fake news, a, a, a deep fake video, or a, a press release that wasn't legitimate. Whether or not that happened will be something I'm sure for the courts and legal process to decide and validate. However, the damage is done, and the the situation for an organisation to respond to is present, um, and I, we I think we will start to see people getting towards that tipping point that says, we're now looking for positively confirmed and verified data and information, rather than, I think we still operate as an assumption that most of what we read is true. And there are authoritative sources, and I will lend greater value or credence to those sources versus others. And I think we're starting to see a real fracture of, of that sort of belief that most things we read and see are true. Is it fair to say we're more reactive at the moment than proactive? Definitely. I think uh, we did some research earlier this year, um, and if you sort of step back in a macro view um, across North America and the UK, I think 64% of organisations believe that their cyber programmes were almost entirely reactive. And I think that is very, very telling. And, and they're reactive against very, very important challenges. They're reactive against a relentless dynamic threat environment. They're re reactive against new, punitive, rapidly evolving regulatory environments, new legislations and, and litigation. And they're reacting to advances in technology. Um, and if we take Deepfake as an example of that, you're having to react to all of those things at once, on top of everything else. So. What are the privacy components to deepfake? Do we understand how adversaries are using a, a deepfake attack and in that adversary kill chain? And are we able to develop and evolve our own technology controls to respond to that in real time? So that's why an organization, I think, to your point, is feeling reactive. Because to get out beyond this takes a huge amount of investment to think about what the next wave of um, prevention and detection is. And we are stuck in a very reactive cycle at the moment. So what's happening in the detection arena at the moment? What's the technology? Well, a lot of the point, and, and there's, a, there's a fascinating shift, I, I, we believe, about to happen. Um, at the moment, the majority of detection is based purely on internal signals within your organization. Used to be focused on network. Now it's moved beyond that to really encompass um, devices, activity, behavior, and patterns. And the external insight and impetus we get is through information intelligence sharing and identifying um, actors, campaigns, attacks, malware, and, and all of the traditional components of a, a security operations sort of detection stack. Increasingly, what I think we're, we're starting to look at are um, bigger correlation sim engines that take a bigger, much greater pool of intelligence across multiple organizations, multiple industries, and are able to pool that and assess that in real time. So no longer are you purely um, uh, 
constrained by the view of everything you see. It should be everything we see and our ability to orchestrate and discuss that. That would be a big shift, and we're not there yet. And it demands a change in uh, trust models about how people trust and share information. It also demands a change in how you're able to um, assess and respond, because you're, you're ratcheting up the volume of um, noise, but also incidents that people may see. So we have to completely change our uh, model for delivering security operations around automation and workflow and use of AI as part of your uh, ability to analyze and prevent you know, attacks and signals in real time. And I think that will help us reach parity, step one, and then get ahead of some of these rapidly evolving threats and attack vectors. Um, so, it, and it's enabled at its heart by new operational styles, new AI-based technologies, and a much broader view of the attack surface. And most of the organizations that you work with, or you've, you've spoken with, are they ready for this change? Um, fascinatingly, I think that they are aware of the change, and a lot of them are working towards it. But I think very few organizations are truly ready for it. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that's the right place to be. Um, we're, looking, we're, looking a, we're looking a horizon beyond um, a normal budget cycle when we talk about these things. So our ability to um, realize the maturity and the volume and the type of capability that companies will need in 18 months, two years' time um, is exactly where we with the conversation is today. And people are talking about speed of orchestration. They are really thinking about how they automate response and gain a better view of a, an attack surface and completely re-architect their data analytics fabric and layer within the security space. Um, those are the conversations we're having today, and I think it's exactly the right point. You can't rip up or stop your current cyber ops team. You need to think about how you augment them over the next 18 months to two years so it can give you a really different ability to respond. Um, and people are talking about it. I had an absolutely amazing conversation with um, a big group of, uh, of CIOs and, and CISOs just a couple of weeks ago. And this was a huge topic of conversation where, where a year ago even it wouldn't have been. We would have talked about risk and people and talent and communicating with the board um, but now we're, we're really evolving the conversation to talk about what are the direct implications of AI? How can I improve the speed of my um, security development teams and applications? Where and how do I put controls in a cloud environment? And also how do I create a security operations in capability that can evolve and respond in real time? Um, I think we're, we're maturing into that conversation now. So there's a lot of fear around deep fakes, and I know you've been quite positive, or at least you, you've said that deep fakes could be a positive thing for security. How is that so? I think the, the positivity is um, very much in the fact that it drives us to think about security through a different lens, no longer just about an external technology attack or a traditional um, set of processes that an adversary is going to address. Um, it really forces 
an organization, a security leader, or a regulator to address concepts of reputation, of privacy, of risk, and a different response style. And I think all of those things are fundamental to being a, you know, a digitally aware and digitally resilient organization in the future, rather than one that is able to respond to attacks as fast as possible in a reactive way. For me, that's the most wonderful thing about it. And I, and I also think that deepfakes are not yet mainstream enough to be having a damaging impact day to day. So it's one of those few opportunities where we're worrying and talking about something that has yet to hit. But do you think it will? Do you think there will be a time, maybe in a couple of years, where we won't be able to differentiate between what's real and what's not real? Definitely. Definitely. I think there is a very genuine, you know, genuinely a real, you know, real danger that um, our ability as human beings to discern the difference between two voices, two pictures, two videos, one real and not real, um, could, could very much be a big part of how we respond, how we think about privacy, how we you know, address concepts of um, what is real and what is not. If you can't check and if you don't have an intuitive feel, then you have to rely on technology to help you with that. Um, there's some really interesting websites. There's one I actually wrote it down. There's a website called whichfacesreal.com. Oh, yeah. If you've seen it, it gives you two faces. One that is a completely artificially generated face, and one that isn't. And I pride myself on the ability to spot a fake, whether it's a fake email, whether it's a fake um, data point. You have a look and it's fascinating which faces, they're so realistic and they're generated through an algorithm that's now open source. The first iteration, glasses were slightly off, shadows weren't right, hair was, you know, was poorly rendered. Six months later, they're, they're really good and the ability to create multiple fake pictures of a face in different environments allow you to create a whole backstory around a person that doesn't exist. So it's no longer just about stealing a, a picture that somebody has, but actually creating a whole narrative and backstory around that person. And I think that is where we need to really focus our efforts. As you say, in understanding and using technology to validate and verify what is true and right and what, what isn't. Um, we can do that. We all carry a cloud of identity-related attributes around us, where we are physically, what we buy, who we talk to. You know, all of these things can be used to create a, um, a set of attributes around us as an individual or a machine and what we produce. And we just need to link and stamp data points between us as an individual and those, and those components. And you create a... a a verification or a trust between a document, video, picture, and an individual or, or an entity. But as you say, sort of, if something goes viral, it's out it's there, out there. The reputation is damaged. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the old adage that a brand is something you give and a reputation is something you receive. And within that is nested an assumption that you don't control the reputation that you have. And that is influenced by, not just by the brand you project, but other people and their comments on that brand. And I think that is something, that's a macro societal level issue that we're gonna to have to work our way through. And I think we're working it 
we're working through that right now in any every aspect of society, whether it's um, in politics, whether it's in social media, whether it's celebrities or sports people or scientists, uh, the ability to understand and manage your brand and the reputation that you receive you know, is, is something that's really tricky. I don't know how we get through that. That's a, that's a much bigger conversation than a security one. But where it impacts security, it's absolutely vital. Again, I go back to that. There is a discrete and tangible link between an organization's reputation and their credit score. And as any CFO will tell you, the credit score drives your ability to you know, make financial decisions. You know, your ability to, to borrow money, your ability to operate, the questions you answer at your annual shareholders meeting. Now, these are real business issues driven by reputation. Um, so it, it, it does very quickly become a board-level agenda item, much more so than malware on machines or data files lost or compliance targets hit or missed. You know, when you're talking about creditworthiness of an organization and their reputation as a board, as a brand, and as individuals. And I think that becomes, you know, again, truly a board-worthy conversation to have. Thanks to Andre. Now, where does the law currently stand on deepfakes? I spoke with Tamara Quinn, a non-contentious IP and data privacy partner at Osborne Clark, who shares her views on how the law might evolve in this space. There's quite a lot of law out there that can be used uh, to counter deepfakes in certain situations, but it's, it, it's quite a hodgepodge, it's quite piecemeal. There's, there's different bits of law. There's, um, there's data protection law, there's copyright law, there are laws around things like passing off and, and, and reputation. There is, of course, criminal law. There's law relating to fraud. So there's quite a lot of different areas of law which, which can be brought to bear in particular cases, depending on what's going on. But the, you know, the, the interesting question for lawyers is, what are we going to need in future? Uh, and probably we're going to need some different laws, some more specific laws, which are really taking a hold of what this technology can do and where it might go, and putting in place specific provisions that people are going to be able to use in, in particular situations. How do you see deepfakes impacting the legal system? What are your concerns? One of the concerns is, is quite a broad one, which is uh, the impact on evidence that might be used in um, either criminal or civil proceedings. When it becomes very easy to fake evidence, which we have all been relying on um, in the past, that raises some very serious questions uh, for the legal system. So we, we've been used to pretty much being able to rely on uh, surveillance, camera uh, images, photographic evidence, of course, recordings. We've, we've been used to treating those as pretty much sacrosanct and representing reality. And I, I think there's, there's obviously going to be a significant problem if it turns out that quite soon we might not be able to be sure that they are uh, reliable after all. That poses a, a serious risk, I think, for all of us. There's another area of risk as well, which is um, 
sort of reputational risk. That's something of concern to clients. It might be that people set out to adopt, I suppose, what you might call something like a corporate sabotage, where they are faking, for example, um, maybe they fake uh, a video of um, someone from an organization making an announcement, which, which turns out not to be true, but affects the share prices and allows someone to take advantage of something. Uh, perhaps some uh, footage is recorded, perhaps audio footage, you know, purporting to be a secretly recorded conversation saying that, a company is um, uh, indulging in some uh, terrible trade practices in a remote country. Uh, you know, that sort of thing could easily go viral and have a huge impact on, on a company. So, so there's a lot to worry about. And do you see some kind of watermark being implemented to protect digital assets? These are interesting areas. The, the, the technological solutions, I think, are, are, are probably going to end up being important. Now, what form those technological solutions take uh, is, is, I think, unclear at the moment. But I think um, the idea of having uh, some kind of so-called digital watermark, which is something which is um, a, some sort of change which is not, not detectable to the average user but has been embedded in the, in the file um, and, which can, and, and which if there is an alteration, that will show up because, because that, uh, there will have been a change to the watermark. I mean, that's, that's one of the technologies that's being talked about and worked on at the moment. And, uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd be very surprised if something like that is not going to come into fairly general use. Uh, but there are all, you know, as we know, there are, lot, there are lots of other uh, technologies as well. There are, you know, what, what, what tends to be called sort of more, more a fingerprinting approach, which is, which is not where you're, you're not so much interfering with the actual underlying uh, file itself. What you're doing is uh, running it through an algorithm, whatever, to create a hash or something of that type, which can be transmitted along with the file, and which um, the user can then can, can then check and tell whether the uh, the file that's been sent may have may have been altered, and so can you know, can take a closer look if that's the case. So there seem to be quite a few different technologies as to which ones are going to win out. Hard to say at this point. Thank you to both of my guests, Tamara and Andre, on the topic of deep fakes. Do contact us with your deep fake scam stories. We'd love to hear them. That's all from us for now. Do follow us on Twitter, at Tice, that's T-E-I-S-S, and comment on, rate and review our shows. Thank you so much. Join us next time for more Cyber Conversations.